Roxy, we're a few weeks behind the breaking news, and some of our listeners possibly know from social media, but we should tell our listeners that you got engaged. It's very exciting. I, I did. Um, <laughs> My voice went up. Wow. It did. That was amazing. <laughs> um, we got engaged the night before Thanksgiving, which was also the one year anniversary of our first date. And it was very good timing because I got to see you both the next day at our Friendsgiving gathering and celebrate in person. I actually think that's why he planned it that way. <laughs> well, I will say your fiance was also very excited to carve up a turkey. And maybe that's just the way he wanted to celebrate this new... <laughs> By butchering a bird. <laughs> just as the pilgrims did. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single... Cr- no? No? Just really used to saying it that way? <laughs> All right. Let me try it again. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two Christian women living all the highs and lows together in New York City. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations celebrating our diversity and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. It really has been a a whiplash year, like Mm. probably one of the more intense, maybe the most intense ones of my life. Mm -hmm. It's weird. I, in the last couple of weeks, I've actually had multiple people, um, I think like three, tell me that they got married the same year that they lost their dad, which is kind of wild and not really a club I want to be in, but Mm -hmm. here we are. What do you think that's about? Not to psychoanalyze you or these other people. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if life change begets life change or Mm -hmm. if that is, if it's just coincidence, you know, I mean, we were obviously talking about getting married before I lost my dad, but I do think that it really distilled some things for me where I was like Mm -hmm. in losing dad, I was like, okay, like I am, I am ready to have someone and, you know, seeing like Mm -hmm. my parents' partnership and what it meant to them. Mm -hmm. And also just that feeling of like, life doesn't go on forever. So like, yeah, grab this thing that's in front of me Mm -hmm. and embrace love and all of that, you know? So I think there's some of that too, where it's sort of Mm -hmm. something that maybe like, I I didn't want to speed up the timeline. It wasn't really like that, but it, it was just sort of like, why, why wait, you know, not, and mm-hmm. and a sense of like yeah this is 
this is the important stuff of life. Like love yes. is and friendship yes. is and people are. And all of that felt very mm-hmm. crystallized. Yes. In the wake of losing him. Yeah. When we talked off record a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. We do that. You reflected that walking through the experience of losing your dad with the person you're engaged to now, like clarified what you want out of life and clarified that he was someone you could really depend on for support in like the Mm -hmm. absolute, you know, one of the worst things you could possibly experience. And so I'm so grateful that you had him and and others, you know, an entire community to kind of catch you. Yeah. Then that's a lot of what we want to talk about today, but I can't overstate how grateful I am for my friends, for my community, for my church, for my fiance. Like having people in good people in your life really makes a big difference in hard times. I think we we could just end the podcast there. That's the, the takeaway. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> Be good to your people, people. Yeah. Well, going back to this whirlwind year for you, it just does seem to be the case that it has included like some of the highest highs and lowest lows in a very short Mm -hmm. period of time in a way that you might actually wish to have a little bit more (laughs) breathing room. But Mm -hmm. that combination of joy and sorrow, those profound experiences so often go together you know Mm. it seems like we are in this time of year when that is true and made clear for a lot of people just the bittersweet nature of love and loss are you trying to are you working on an advent sermon here we're basically two-thirds of the way there you know just throw in some (laughs) we haven't mentioned jesus yet that'd probably be good but (laughs) <laughs> we're we're getting there. We'll we'll keep working on it. But yeah, I mean, I do feel I feel really weirdly connected to Advent this year. The sense of I mean, I've always loved Advent. It's like in some ways I like it better than mm-hmm. Christmas. But I do feel this year like I have a lot of excitement and a lot of anticipation and a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. But I'm holding it at the same time as I'm holding like mm-hmm. profound grief and loss and also, you know, also this is just like kind of a hard time in the world too. So it it just feels like it's it's sometimes a guilty feeling too of like how can you mm-hmm. be happy in the midst of so mm-hmm. much pain and then sometimes I can feel really happy and then like turn around and sit down and start crying <laughs> like it just kind mm-hmm. of feels that's like the roller coaster that it feels like right now yeah I mean I'm sure for you and for a lot of other people walking through acute grief during the holidays it's the memories of the joy and the happiness shared with your family member or your loved one. And the memory just calls to mind once again, like you won't have that with them in this lifetime again, like that time has passed. And so happy memories beget grief that Mm -hmm. that's gone. I know I mentioned my friend Sarah on the podcast. She lives in Alabama with four young kids and she lost her husband to a very aggressive form of cancer. Like actually three years ago today when this podcast episode comes out and I was just with her visiting and like, um, we laughed a lot and enjoy one another so much. And her kids are thriving in so many ways. And also Mm -hmm. she is still in acute grief 
Hmm. I don't even know why I say still, as if like, you should be over it, you know, but, (laughs) and I think there's something like seasonal and cyclical about the grief. I mean, I think the fact that it was this time Mm -hmm. three years ago that she was basically Mm -hmm. living at the hospital, Mm -hmm. um, staying there overnight, watching her husband like wither away without any kind of prognosis or treatment. It's, it's just a lot to try to hold, I think, especially in this time of year. Mm-hmm. Like on, on a very surface level, we think of Christmas as like, it's the happiest time of the year. It's a time for joy and celebration. And like, my gosh, how many people in this time are walking around like, wo- like they're the walking wounded. And like, mm-hmm. do we have space for people for whom the holidays are actually a time of intense grief, of intense sadness? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the contrast of the expectation that you be happy and not mm-hmm. feeling it that just makes it all the more worse. And I knew that. <laughs> I've heard many people say many times over the years, like how hard the holidays are for people who are grieving. Mm. And it's really hit me this year. Like I, the memories are just so dense this time of year, mm. right? Like it's like, there's so many traditions, so many things that mm-hmm. I did for years and years and years and years with my dad um, and ways that, you know, it, Christmas was such a happy time and he was always part of it and he was part mm-hmm. of that happy time. And so that's like makes the memories even harder. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's just there are just triggers everywhere. You know, um, I got my first like Christmas letter and that was a huge trigger because my dad always did our Christmas letter and it was a big project for him. He would send it to me to edit and to add my part. Mm-hmm. So I think there's just the, that stuff is like always right around the corner. And I can't imagine how that is for your friend, Sarah, who's watching her kids grow up and have these mm-hmm. memories without him. And I also can't imagine how hard it is for my mom who is at home right now in, in the place where the memories are densest. You know. Yes. This is all one of the reasons we wanted to talk to our guest today. We just acknowledge that the holidays can be a particularly hard time for anyone walking through grief. And our guest today knows what that is like, both personally and in his daily work. This week, we are honored to be joined by J.S. Park, a longtime chaplain at Tampa General Hospital. J.S. has counseled thousands of patients and their families through terminal illnesses, devastating diagnoses, and tragic losses. People really wanted to talk about death and dying, mortality and grief. And I think there is something intrinsic or innate or a need in us to want to be able to confront and grapple with and hold on to and embrace the idea of death. Our conversation with JS is coming up later in the show. Another reason we really wanted to talk to JS is he said before how important he feels it is to normalize death and dying. And I both really agree with that and find that to be a very hard thing to do in practice. This is something I really Mm -hmm. realized this summer after losing dad is just how far removed on the whole I, as a society and in my own life, I have felt from death you know, growing up mm-hmm. in a small town, I went to a lot of funerals. Like you just, you know, everybody. So you go to their funerals, but I, other than like people I've been related to, I haven't gone to a lot of funerals as an adult. Mm-hmm. 
And I think there's some like intentionality built into our society in that way. Like we've sort Mm -hmm. of just created a life where we don't face death very often. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of that's like New York City. I don't know. I mean, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't even, most of my friends are my age. Like I don't live in a super intergenerational community. Right. And most of my friends are transplants. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when like for me, like when they have family members who die, like they leave and they go away and they mourn it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Not here, you know, so I'm not part of that. Yeah. I mean, this week will be three years since my friend Sarah's husband's funeral. And I traveled to Birmingham to attend. It was Mm -hmm. it was really important for me to be there. And also, I know that I kind of went through it like, okay, I crossed that off the list or like I checked that box. Like I did the thing that signifies mourning Mm. and now that's over. And obviously that's just not how grief works. And I wonder if that, like the modern approach to funeral homes or hospice care funerals is all about like, we have this thing separate over here. Mm -hmm. And then when it's wrapped up, we're done. Like we want to make it efficient and kind of set apart, whereas grief is not efficient. It's like very messy, very cyclical, can come up in the most unexpected ways. We haven't been really given the tools or the foundation for knowing how to grieve well, so to speak. A couple of years ago, someone I know at church lost her dad. I remember her telling me and I remember being really sad for her. And I don't think I did much else, you know, like, I mean, I think maybe I asked her how she was doing a couple more times. But when my dad died this year, I, I was so crushed. And I realized in the middle of that, I realized how devastated she would have been. She was. And I didn't know how to be there for her. Mm-hmm. And I don't think our community n- knew in some ways how to be mm. there for her because it just doesn't happen to us very often. And yeah. and, and it really hit me this year. I was like, oh, you know, this is going to start happening to our community a lot more. Like, there are a lot of people in our church who are kind of entering that age where we mm-hmm. lose parents. And I think I just realized that I... I needed more than I would have guessed that someone mm. would need from their people during that time. Mm-hmm. And I felt sort of, I don't want to say ashamed because I think that's the wrong word. I felt i felt like I had been ill-equipped for most of mm. my adult life to care for people who who lost someone. And I don't think that I, I showed up for them in the way that I would now. Mm. I don't think you should feel ashamed. <laughs> But, but we kind of don't know what other people need until we know what we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think in the same way that I didn't know how to show up for people in that way, I I didn't know how much it would mean Hmm. to have someone show up in that way. Like, I think probably in the past, I would have thought they're, they're probably hearing from so many people or they're, Mm. you know, I don't want to. Like, I wasn't that good of a friend to them in the past. So why would I show? That's not what I want to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that I wasn't that good of a friend, but like, we weren't that close. So why am I sending sure. a card or why am I showing up? You know, but actually, like, mm. a lot of people reached out to me that I was like, oh, I don't actually mm. know this person that well, but I'm really grateful that they sent me a note. It's always better to err on the saying something than to presume. Mm-hmm. I mean, the challenge is like, how do you keep showing up? Yes. Yes. So if you're comfortable, 
maybe it would be helpful not not to create a listicle out of your grief. <laughs> I feel like that's usually a bad approach, but what were some of the concrete things that others did for you that really like made the difference? Like you want a top 10. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, there are so many things. And actually, I was kind of amazed at how many people actually do like know how to show up I w- and, and how many things that I was like, oh, I didn't know you were supposed to do that. Now I know. Like a lot of people sent money for the funeral. Mm. I don't think I've, I'd ever done that before. And it wouldn't have mm. occurred to me to do that because I, I, I would have felt presumptuous or something. But actually, like even if there's a life insurance policy, there's a lot of like immediate right expenses that like you just have to pay right away Mm -hmm. um my good friend jonathan he flew in a couple days like i i went to colorado right away he flew out there and he just did some nice things like got groceries for us and Mm-hmm. made breakfast for us and helped sort through photos for the slideshow which mm. you know was really really hard and also he helped make it fun he also helped you he helped you write your father's obituary i can't imagine sitting down with that task yeah and to have someone like just help you through it and the obituary was so beautiful it was just it was so specific and I felt like I I never met your dad but I felt like I had a real clear mm. sense of who this person was and also that's another thing I learned is that people really read obituaries like your your parents my parents and they sent me a card which was so yeah. sweet yeah and I had a bunch of people reach out that like that they just found it online and I was like oh that's a thing that people do they they search mm. for obituaries online and read them and that actually meant a lot to me and that's something that I would want to do now is like go read an obituary for someone's loved one and Mm -hmm. let them know, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, I think that just that, that meant a lot to me that my coworkers found it, that other friends found it. Mm -hmm. A a friend of mine whose wife passed several years ago, he reached out and he was like, he's like, I know you'll be inundated with flowers right now, but tell me a date in the future that you want Mm. me to send flowers to your mom. And I will. And Mm. so, like, I told him the week that I was leaving Colorado and I was like, I think it'd be great if she got flowers after that. And so, like, that was really sweet. Yeah. My, a friend of mine came, who lives across the street from me, the the day that he, that dad died, she came over Mm -hmm. that night and she helped me pack to go to Colorado because I just was like, no state to pack. And she brought me a couple martinis and three dresses that I could possibly Mm. use for the funeral and that was nice because I didn't I don't have a dress hanging in my closet that reminds me of my dad's funeral now like it was a borrowed dress I hadn't even thought about that such a concrete way to help somebody you know and actually one of the super helpful things my fiance now boyfriend at the time like he put he put together a whatsapp group for all of like my people and he communicated to people through that about like here's funeral arrangements here's where to send mm-hmm. stuff here's here's what's going on here's how she feels you know like it was just like I didn't have to tell 30 people 30 different times <laughs> yes and that was super helpful I was like this man's logistical skills <laughs> 
I mean, truly, like, it was so helpful to have that regular line of communication kind of getting updates from you through him. A lot of people do want to do something, but they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And, like, not knowing what to do, they end up not doing much of anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that was that was really great. And he also helped to organize a get-together for when you returned to New York. What was that like for you? Yeah. And that's actually one of the things, another friend of mine who had lost his dad last year, um, and he's Greek Orthodox. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that he had mentioned to me was that in that tradition, there's always a celebration 40 days after the person has passed. Mm. And actually I like looked it up online and like, there's a lot of different religions and traditions that have some kind of significance around 40 days that Mm. celebration had really meant a lot to him because there's something about 40 days that feels a little bit like a transition out of Mm -hmm. acute, acute grief and, and the sort of practicality and logistics of all of what has to happen. Right. And you sort of enter into a different season or a different era of grief. Mm -hmm. And that for me, that was also the first weekend that I was back in New York city. So Mm. just feeling like, I wanted my community to be part of my grief and mourning and not to feel like I went away and grieved my dad and then came back and then just like life went back to normal. Like I Mm -hmm. wanted to feel like I got to mark that with my people too and not just like my hometown community. Right. So, so we did a really nice ceremony at my church side note my fiance happens to be a priest so it helps so he did like (laughs) a nice service and my friend Jonathan read a nice benediction and you know I read some memories of my dad and we lit some candles we sang some hymns Mm. and and then we we had a potluck you know Mm. and it really it really meant a lot to me to be able to do that and I think it it really I heard from several friends, you know, that it it really did feel like a chance to be present in a way that Mm -hmm. was hard to do over the distance. Right, right. So I am really grateful for that. And I think that like ritualizing was Mm -hmm. significant for me and, and helped to not feel like I just had to come back and pretend to be normal in New York. Yeah, that in coming back to New York, it's not like you're now alone in your grief or you're with people who don't know or don't acknowledge, like they're Mm -hmm. carrying it with you moving forward. Yeah. And I know, I know you go back to Birmingham every year and like recognizing that this time of year is always going to be hard for your friend and to be Mm -hmm. there year after year, even when it would be easy to think that that's far enough in the past that you don't need to do that anymore. So yeah, I want to be someone who can keep showing up even after the initial, Mm -hmm. the acute grief has, has recited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think to sum it up, community is really important. Your people are really important. And in times of joy and sorrow, it's really good to show up for your people. Another Bible passage is coming to mind, but I'm not going to try to quote it. Instead, we will get into the significance of that and more with our guest today, Jess Park. But before we do that, let's give a shout out to the organization that makes this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Whether you celebrate Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Diwali, or nothing at all, RNS has you covered. 
And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward getting the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. As we mentioned last week, we are busy making plans for season seven, next season <laughs> of the podcast. We'd love to hear any ideas you have for guest topics. What do you want to hear from us? We would love to hear from you. Seven is a holy number. What if we get to 40? <laughs> I don't want to think about how old we'll be. (laughs) Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we are honored to be joined by hospital chaplain J.S. Park, who has been at the bedside and in the room during some of the most difficult moments of people's lives. Thanks so much for joining us, J.S. Hi, J.S. Hi, I'm very, very happy to be here, Caitlin and Roxy. Thank you. Roxy and I were recently reading, that's an awkward way to put it because it sounds like we were like reading it together. We were we were <laughs> cuddled up on a couch together just re- reading aloud. I mean, that's the only yeah. way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you were recently profiled by CNN for the work that you do in the hospital system and you described yourself in that profile as a grief catcher. So what does that phrase mean to you? I think of that at several levels. Sometimes I'm physically catching people when they get news or when they're grieving. And then I'm also catching stories. Yeah, when I'm at bedside, I may ask, what was your loved one like? And uh, the room will tell me stories. They may start sharing adjectives first, just one word answers. Then somebody may share the last memory they had. And then they'll go almost backwards through this person's life. And as they become visible, I am catching the story of this person. And, you know, a lot of those times in those rooms, as they start telling the stories, it goes from tears to smiling as they remember good times to outright laughter. Mm. There is something about someone sharing their expression of emotion, all their grief, everything that they're carrying about this person who is now gone. And in that sense, I'm catching their grief in that when we're able to share what is so unbearable, we can somehow then bear it together. You are often the last person someone in the hospital sees or speaks to. 
how do you navigate that pressure? And what would you say is your main goal in those moments? Yeah. Thank you for naming that. It is a lot of pressure. Sometimes I'm the first person someone sees at the hospital. Sometimes I am the last as well. The pressure part of it is when I walk into a room, I have to, within five to 10 seconds, like immediately acclimate to the world of this patient, their atmosphere, their culture, their language, their symbols, their stories, where they're at, Mm. their faith background. And chaplains, we see everyone, religion, no religion. I guess if I could define what a chaplain is, the technical clinical definition is a non-anxious, non-judgmental, comforting presence. Mm. So Mm. if I can contrast it with a pastor, pastors preach, whereas a chaplain is a presence. Mm-hmm. Going without imposing anything, I enter their framework and I assume that people who have questions also often carry their own answers. You speak and write a lot about your own experiences with grief and loss. So why does that feel important to you to kind of talk about these experiences so openly and persistently? Yeah, you know, I think at first I was just sharing about my work and what I saw here's this unseen corner of uh, work that no one really knows about. When you hear the word chaplain, it, it conjures up all kinds of already loaded images. And I think what I was surprised by is the response to it, that people really wanted to talk about death and dying, mortality and grief. And I think there is something intrinsic or innate or a need in us to want to be able to confront and grapple with and hold on to and embrace the idea uh, of death. There's an importance in being able to talk about grief because there is so much suppression around it and cultural stuff through the years Mm -hmm. that has sort of made that conversation even filled with shame. The work that I'm doing is almost like a proof in itself that people are ready and want to have that conversation. What is a positive or helpful way that religious communities can engage these these experiences? I'll first kind of reverse answer your question. There's a thing online called Christian Grief Coaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, good intentions or not, and I'm sure there are good intentions, I found this sort of unhelpful. And I'm just going to read some of what Christian Grief Coaching promises. This is what not to do. This is what not to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in case someone's in the middle of listening, nodding, let's preface first, (laughs) this is what's not to do. And again, I don't want to belittle them. If it works for someone, that's awesome. But Mm -hmm. I just, as I was reading this, it troubled me a little bit. The Mm -hmm. tagline on this Christian grief coaching certification thing is grief stops, joy starts. Reduce suffering five to eight years or often down to months. Control your emotions because they're deceitful. Build Mm. a personal firewall to protect your thought life. Okay. Scripture proven by science. Maybe that's okay. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big claim. Scripture proven by science. I don't know what that means. (laughs) I don't want to dismiss it out of hand, but I put a question mark next to that. Like, what's that? Overcome (laughs) grief more quickly than with a therapist. Hmm. And here's their final tagline. Put grief down and learn to live again. So this Christian grief coaching... I'm sure it has helped a lot of folks. And I'm a big believer of if it works, it works. Mm -hmm. But I think this is indicative and reflective of how a lot of Christian communities treat grief in that it is some sort of sickness to be cured. And that's what I find very troubling to my soul. I think to answer that question, I'd probably give the same answer that I often give. 
But naming the grief is so important. Mm -hmm. Naming it. What is going on with you? Mm -hmm. And I think some Christian communities are quick to like unname it or to push past the naming of what is happening in the moment into future hope. But let's Mm -hmm. stay in the present, naming what is happening and then validating what is happening. Mm -hmm. Saying you're not too much or that makes sense that that happens. It makes sense that you feel like you can't live in your own head right now. And I think the third thing, and if you have a better word for this, because I feel like this is not the best word for it, but ritualizing our grief, I think is so important. Mm -hmm. What can we do in our daily or yearly lives Mm -hmm. to honor and memorialize this person? To ask someone to turn the page and move on and say, you know, oh, God's going to start a new chapter in your life. I think that's, it's almost like at every fixture of memory where we shared something important, it's like it's torn away at every fixture. It's just an avulsion of their love and their life from our lives. And to ask someone to just turn the page on that is an impossible ask. And so I believe that there's a way that we can ritualize and embrace and incorporate the memory of the dead into who we are. You were raised Christian and Buddhist, right? So Christian, atheist, and Buddhist. Yes. Okay. So you've talked about leaning atheist at times yourself. Mm -hmm. What is the role religion has played in your work and in your perspective on death? And has that changed over time? For sure. Yeah. You know, I came to Christianity maybe mid-20s. You know, I went into Mm -hmm. a Baptist seminary still as an atheist, (laughs) which, Mm -hmm. yeah, I haven't said out loud very much. Now, when I got into chaplaincy, by that time, I had certain ideas about loss, about grief. Chaplains do a six-month internship, and then if we're accepted, a year-long residency. Halfway through my residency, I did lose my faith completely. I was just seeing too much Mm -hmm. suffering. And I thought, maybe I was right the whole time. None of this is for any reason. The hardest for me and from all of us, I think, in the hospital is to see a baby die. Mm. Um, Yeah. So there were several patient encounters, very, very young patients who uh, halfway through my residency, I said, it's easier not to believe. And so... I think I've lost my faith probably a couple times since then and have come back, but each time I've come back very different. Hmm. So to answer your question, Roxy, I think the main thing for me, what faith plays in my own life is I am not really interested anymore in trying to keep or hold on to theology in a way that I have to prove it or hold it up somehow. But I'm interested in what sort of theology holds me What will hold my patients in pain? What will hold those family members who have just lost their loved one? I will meet everyone where they're at, faith or no faith. And for those who have lost faith, a thousand percent understandable. I've just, Mm. I've kept my hands open, you know, and it may change again. I may see too much again. But, uh, you know, before I go into every room, I still pray the same prayer. I ask, uh, how do you want to work through me? And that's been what has been holding me. Hmm. This is maybe a little bit of a personal angle on this question, but you know, I've heard a number of people tell me since I lost my dad that the first year is really hard. And like think of that of that as a grieving year. And so I'm kind of wondering, maybe and especially in that year, but even in the acute stages of that, like what is your advice for people who are trying to support loved ones or friends as they are grieving a loss and how to be there well for people through that season. I 
recognize that there's no perfect way to be with someone because everyone is different. But I think the main thing I found is just as everyone needs differently, everyone grieves differently. Mm. And I think it's important that when we are supporting someone who is grieving, that moment to moment, their needs can change. And so to be available and flexible for where they're at and to know that what may have quote unquote worked today, a hot meal may not work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But availability is the most important thing. Being there, checking in in a way that's not pushing in too hard, but just enough to say I'm here. And then also being as specific as possible when they have a need. Don't just tell someone, uh, hey, I can buy a meal for you anytime. But instead, hey, Tuesday and Thursday, I can bring you a meal on either day at 6 o'clock p.m. Would that be okay for you? Last Saturday, I ordered... um, of food for my friend who was having a really, really hard time. They had a hard time picking what to eat and what time. And I said, does mm-hmm. euros sound good? Euros for a hero is, is <laughs> how I put it to him. And he said, that sounds fantastic. So being flexible and I think not shaming the person for where they're at. In grief, I've seen extreme expressions of emotion, like screaming, wailing, rolling on the floor, dancing, uh, singing, clapping, laughing. I've also seen completely muted expressions of grief. Sometimes there are no tears in the moment at all or numbness or cognitive fog. We can't think straight completely. And I think having a lot of grace for that, I encourage and edify a grieving person, any grieving person to advocate for themselves what they need. As much as you are able within your capacity, if you scream and wail and shout, to be able to advocate for yourself and say, this is what I need to do right now, because not everyone knows that that's okay. Uh, not everyone knows how to validate that. Mm-hmm. Or to advocate for yourself and say, you know what, I'm hungry and all I really wanna eat is ice cream or I just want a hamburger or I just wanna go to my favorite place, can you take me? Or can you go with me to therapy or can you? So I think there are grieving people who feel kind of like, I don't wanna take up too much space. I'm just gonna be in this side of the room. Hmm. That should not be on the grieving person. But if this can encourage anyone with even a little bit of strength, like ask for your workplace for the time that you need, you know, in those manuals where it's like, loved one dies, you get two days or you get Mm. maybe at most three, you know, again, that's capitalistic wheels of our culture. Just go back to baseline. Welcome back to the, Mm -hmm. you know, contribution and productivity. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But ask your workplace for exactly what you need. And I think the person who is supporting hear that person's need as they advocate for themselves and and be there. Mm. Thank you. One final question. Everybody probably wants to know this from you, but you know, I think we we are all always curious like what do people in their last days like what are they happy they did? What do they regret that they never did? How do they wish they would have lived differently? How has that impacted the way that you live your life and what you prioritize? And I know you mentioned presence before and really being with people in a room, but but what else might you say it's sort of compelled you to think about living differently? Most people who, if they have regrets, and most people do, it's about not being able to be truest to themselves. And sometimes Mm -hmm. if I am the last one to sit with my patient as they die, I may be the one person who sees that person fully as they are because they'll tell me this is what I am or this is who I am. But the other thing I often hear too is that there are people who did want to be themselves But because of the system and culture and lack of resources around them, we're not able to be so. 
that has definitely compelled me towards justice for those who I feel like they're going into their deathbed, their only regret really being, I wasn't alive in a time where I could be fully alive. Mm. And that's a heartache that can only be changed when systems are changed. So if a woman wanted to be a pastor her whole life and her church told her it's not possible, oh, that's, yeah, even thinking about that's making my hands sweat and making me angry for her. Mm -hmm. How do we change that? You know, I know that there are many different opinions on this, but someone who is part of the LGBTQ community and wanted to become clergy or wanted to be fully out and be safe, mm -hmm. how do I change the culture and structure around that so that people can feel safer? So it's not always that people did not choose to be themselves. It's because they couldn't choose and they didn't have the option. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. For this conversation, June. It was really lovely yeah, and we both really appreciate it i know our listeners will glean a lot from it so thank you thank you both and now a benediction for those of us grieving loved ones this holiday season written by kate bowler and read for us here by my dear friend jonathan merritt Oh God, the holidays are coming, and this is the first one in this new reality. I don't know how to get through it. Show me what to do with the memories, the traditions, the pain, and the excruciating beauty of all that was. Blessed are we who come to you, O oh God, in the midst of grief and loss, fear and longing, irritability and anger, gratitude and sweet remembrance, and so much exhaustion. Blessed are we who say, God, I don't know where home is or who I am now. Couldn't I just rest for a while? I am too tired to feel everything there is to feel, too exhausted to face the truth. Grant me solitude enough for solace and company enough for comfort people to be with who know how to slip quietly under the burden of this grief and shoulder it with me without much to say. Blessed are we who ask you for permission to do things the same way or completely differently, to wade through raw emotions or ride on the surface of it all. Grant us wisdom and guidance that transcends the strangeness making whatever little plans are possible. Blessed are we who ask for a way forward during this time, to celebrate some small ritual of remembrance that becomes a safe place to store the love and the grief, the anger and the ache of the knowledge that there is no one who can take their place, not one. Blessed are we who ask you, God, to take hold of the grief and us with it, and lead us through. Amen. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Save by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Windham and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.